0: are listening to Living for the Cinema with Jeff Gershon. I am a cinema enthusiast of all genres, here to discuss with you one film every episode. The good, the bad, and the ugly of what makes each film unique. And finally, spoiler alert! No matter when this film was released, there's a good possibility I will be revealing spoilers about the plot, or even possibly the ending, so just be warned. The Crying Game, which came out in nineteen ninety-two. It was directed by Neil Jordan. It stars Stephen Ray, Jay Davidson, Miranda Richardson, Forrest Whitaker, Adrian Dunbar, Ralph Brown, and Jim Broadbent. The genre would be romantic thriller. So what do you need Fergus? Do you go across the water? An Oscar winning drama. Someone recommended you. Uh guy I work with. She's my type. What you don't know... Hi, Jimmy. ...doesn't hurt. I don't. came to see her, didn't you? Listen, there's something I should tell you. She's, uh, wife. Playing with fire... Hi. I got your bag. Who the fuck's sake. ...has its consequences. Who knows the secrets of the human heart? Thing is, can you go the distance? It depends what it is. The Crying Game. As far as I'm concerned, this is one of the better love stories of the 90s, and definitely one of the best thrillers of the 1990s. Oh, there are some issues for sure, and some aspects which don't exactly age that well. I mean, the way that Dill is written as a character, it's borderline demeaning in the second half of the movie. But I doubt that it was writer-director Neil Jordan's intention. He was going for pure melodrama, which is par for the course in the context of the kind of nutty romantic thriller that Jordan was crafting. Actually, pretty much all of the characters are written with an eye towards melodrama, except Stephen Ray's Fergus. And all of this generally works because of just how well this film was cast. Stephen Ray does a great job with a tricky part. He takes a more subtle approach toward portraying this former IRA terrorist who is now seeking to restart his life, to seek redemption. When I was a child, I thought as a child, But when I became a man, I put away childish things. Ray plays it all very subtly. He has this hangdog expression that just sells so much of this without having to say that much. Miranda Richardson, she also kills it as the sort of old-school femme fatale type delivering every line with a strong bite. Maybe you don't care about yourself. But consider the girl, Fergus. The wee black chick her right this. Jesus, Fergus, you're walking cliche. You know, we won't leave her out of it. Forrest Whitaker is also fantastic in one of his early breakout roles, bringing a lot of heart to the story of Jody, the British military officer who was taken hostage by the IRA. So what's that supposed to mean? It means what it says. A scorpion does what is in its nature. Take off the hood, man. Why? Because you can't. And it's in your nature. I mean, you feel his presence even when he's not technically on screen. And this is actually the first time rewatching this recently that I realized that it was Oscar nominee Jim Broadbent stealing the scene as Cole, the bartender slash Cupid slash Greek chorus of this story. He works at the Metro. Every line or repeated line of his is a gem, and he might go down as one of the better on-screen bartenders. Ask him, does he like his hair, Carl? She wants to know, sir, do you like your hair? Tell her I'm very happy with it. He's Scottish, Carl. Scottish? Yeah. What'd he say? He agreed that he was. What do you think his name be? I have no thoughts on the subject. Jimmy. Jimmy. Jimmy, that's what he said. And of course, that leaves Jay Davidson playing Dill. We'll get to her a bit later. Now, at the time of release for this film, all anybody was talking about was the twist. A major twist which occurs about halfway through the film. And that certainly helped this film get a ton of buzz. Even a couple of years before Pulp Fiction would come out, this was one of those surprise breakout hits which really helped put Miramax on the map. So the so-called twist was relentlessly sold as the key hook for this film, which makes sense because back in 1992, mainstream audiences were just not used to seeing gender fluidity portrayed this way on screen. I'll leave it at that. But honestly, with or without the twist, this film just works as a straightforward romantic thriller of one man seeking his redemption by making it his purpose to protect another and falling in love in the process. The director, Neil Jordan, he did some pretty strong films before this, Mona Lisa, and after this, The End of the Affair. He also did Interview with the Vampire a couple years later, which was pretty good. But The Crying Game remains his masterwork. Just a dazzling, kooky, pop-romantic thriller, which decades later actually transcends its twist. Well, is that Pat's tart? Does Pat have a tart? She's not a tart. No, of course not. She's a lady. No, she's not that either. And that brings me to the categories. The first category would be the best needle drop. This is the best song cue or piece of score used throughout the runtime of the film, because music is essential to film. The crime Game presents us with the extremely rare circumstance of hearing literally three different versions of the title song for the movie, and they all work. Yeah, it's crazy. The song, The Crying Game, was originally a lovely ballad released in 1964 by British rock singer Dave Barry. It's quite melancholy and spare, with a lovely Beach Boy slash Phil Spectorish kind of wall of sound feel to both the vocals and instrumentation. The song has simple, straightforward lyrics all about heartache and kisses and tears, of course, and it just fits perfectly for the vibe of this burgeoning love story. We hear the original version, the 64 version, only during a key moment late in the movie as Dill puts it on the record player, this is the climax, just before things are about to get violent, when Jude comes calling. I know all there is to know about the crying game I've had my share of the cry- Its placement in this sequence both feels romantic and tension-building, which is certainly helped by those building, marching drums that we hear throughout the song. And a diegetic version of this song works even better during a critical sequence earlier in the movie when Fergus actually sees Dill sing the song on stage at a local bar before a rapt audience. And it's clear that Fergus is smitten. (laughs) Yeah, I know it's become quite cliche to include a scene like this in any romantic drama or comedy, where one character realizes their feelings for another once they see them perform on stage. But hey, it just works so well because of the way Davidson is selling it on stage, kind of as a torch song, just sublime. And finally, we hear a more modern, synth, 90s version of the song played over the end credits, performed by Boy George and produced by the Pet Shop Boys. Now, I know some folks are quite mixed on this particular remake, but I quite like it. It helps to be a fan, of course, of the New Wave stylings of both George and the Pet Shop Boys, which I happen to be. It just provides a nice, distinct way of revisiting this song at the very end of the movie. One day soon I'm gonna tell the moon about the cryin' he maybe he'll explain. The next category would be Wasted Talent. This is the most underutilized talent involved with this film. Now, of course, it's Jay Davidson as Dill who really steals this movie. He was nominated for Best Supporting Actor that year, and I still think he was completely robbed, even though that Oscar did go to Gene Hackman who's one of my all-time favorites. Like I said above, the screenplay kind of paints Dill into a corner towards the end, removing some of his agency as a character. But that does not take away from a dazzling performance by Davidson. This performance encompasses all the traits to make a crazy love story like this really work. He's funny, sexy, sad, and mischievous. It's kind of a darker version of the manic pixie dream girl trope, and there's an unpredictability to just the way that he carries himself, and he even says stuff like... Darling... Never let the sun go down on an argument, as J.D. used to say. So while I wouldn't say that Jay Davidson's talent was wasted here, I would say that as a very untested actor at the time, he was presented with some pretty unique challenges, which makes his performance all the more impressive. And beyond that, what has happened to Jay Davidson over the past 30 years? I mean, talk about making a splash for a first-time actor. He received an Oscar nod for his first role, and then a million-dollar paycheck for his second role playing the otherworldly villain King Ra in the sci-fi smash Stargate just a couple of years later. And then after that, well, really nothing on the big screen. He ended up doing some fashion modeling, apparently. He's been seen at big galas accompanying folks like Sharon Stone and Kate Moss. But beyond that, nobody really knows. He just kind of disappeared, and maybe that was by choice. Regardless, no matter what happens from this point on, Davidson just killed it with this performance. And he will always hold a special place for me as a result. This brings me to the next category, which would be the trailer moment. This is the scener moment that best describes this movie. Now, as good as the so-called twist was, I think it's actually the genuinely sweet and clever way that this film ends, which truly cements its place as a great film of its time. I remember first seeing this as a dorky teenager sneaking in after work, because I was working at Lowe's Theaters as an usher, and I got to see the end of this movie a lot because of that. I just had a huge grin on my face leaving the theater. And that was the same expression I had watching it this time. And the crazier thing is that on paper, it's actually not really that happy of an ending for a main character either. I mean, Fergus ends up incarcerated for murder for several years as a result of taking the heat for Dill's fatal shooting of Jude in the climax. Go back, down. I've got to keep you healthy, Jimmy. I'm counting the days. 2,334 left. 35. I'm sorry, darling. Keep getting the leap, here. Down. Yeah. Fergus is literally giving up his freedom to protect him. And yet, it feels very comical and hopeful at the same time, as we see Dill visit him in prison, seeing Dill's new haircut, revisiting the story of the frog and the scorpion. And of course, Lyle Lovett's soulful, but semi-ironic rendition of Stand By Your Man. (laughs) Yeah, it's just a pitch-perfect ending. Can't help it. You're doing time for me. No greater love, as the man says. I wish you'd tell me why the man said, it's in my nature. What's that supposed to mean? Well, there's this scorpion, you see, and he wants to go across a river, but well, he can't swim. So he goes to this frog, who naturally he can swim, and he says to him, uh, Excuse me, Mr. Frog. Sometimes it's all like across the river yeah. Yeah. <laughs> This brings me, of course, to the final category, which would be the MVP. This is the person or people who are most responsible for the success of this film. The crime Game was nominated for seven Oscars the year of its release, including Best Picture. Neil Jordan received two nominations himself for Best Director and, of course, Best Original Screenplay, which he was the sole writer on. He ended up winning for Screenplay, which was the only Oscar this film received, but well-deserved as far as I'm concerned. Because this film is masterfully put together. The characters pop, various settings are explored, and Jordan does an adept job at straddling different genres throughout. I mean, the film starts off as a basic, sobering prisoner's drama, and it basically ends as a twisted romantic comedy. And of course, there is that twist, which I keep coming back to, which helped drive so much of the buzz for this film. Now, it's a good twist for sure, even though anyone with a keen eye could likely see it coming, seriously. And the success of this film was in the early days of a slew of thrillers released throughout the 90s, which had big twists that had everybody talking. There was a whole stream of these. Fight Club, The Sixth Sense, The Usual Suspects, Seven, Jacob's Ladder. And yet one thing pretty much sets The Crying Game apart from most of those other films. In most of those other films, the twist is revealed well into the third act, or even at the very end of the movie. Whereas in the case of The Crying Game, it's at the halfway point. So just think about how much of a challenge that must have been for Jordan. While in most cases, a filmmaker would have been simply content to have audiences leaving theaters with their minds blown by the ending, Jordan did them all one better by taking them on the ride following that twist. The aftermath, the relationship which further develops between Fergus and Dill after they learn the full truth about each other. It's a fun ride all the way through with a gratifying conclusion, no less. For crafting a true original which entertains and engages on so many levels, Neil Jordan is the MVP. But look, thank you very much. Uh, It was a difficult script to write. Uh, People said to me it was about characters that were unappealing and would be unappealing to audiences at large. But I think the way audiences have responded to this film has told me anyway that audiences have it in their hearts to embrace any range of characters and any range of points of view. My rating for The Crying Game would be four and a half stars out of five. (laughs) Happy 30th anniversary to one of my personal favorites, a film which I've had the pleasure of being able to rewatch so many times on the big screen and the small screen, and will continue to rewatch for years to come. And if you're looking to watch The Crying Game, it's currently streaming on HBO Max. And that ends another walking cliché review. Special shout-out to my lovely wife, Marlene Gershon, for producing this podcast, and to my lovely daughter, Ella Gershon, for assisting in the editing. Please like, subscribe, and share the Living for the Cinema podcast, and follow and like us on Facebook, Instagram, and Letterboxd. And join us next time for another review from Living for the Cinema.